I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the LRB podcast. I'm Thomas Jones. My guest this week is Colin Burrow, a fellow of All Souls College, Oxford, whose most recent book is Imitating Authors, Plato to Futurity, and a contributor of many pieces to the London Review of Books. The new Christmas issue of the paper includes his review of Matthew Dennison's unauthorised biography of Roald Dahl, Teller of the Unexpected. Hello, Colin, and thank you very much for joining me again. Hello, Tom, and and happy Christmas in advance. (laughs) We both got our party hats on. The, the, your listeners won't be able to see that, unfortunately. <laughs> um, yeah, Roald Dahl. I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm not alone in having had a sort of queasily oscillating relationship with Roald Dahl's books. I read and loved a lot of them as a child, and came rather to despise him. And then more recently, I've come back round to the books or some of them, up to a point, as a parent on on long car journeys with the children listening to the audiobooks being read really quite well by some very talented actors, that Douglas Hodge, rather like Quentin Blake's illustrations, as you mentioned in the piece, brings whole new levels to Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. But now, after reading your piece, I'm feeling a lot more doubtful again. Matthew Dennison's biography is at least the third biography of Dahl since he died in 1990. Does it tell us anything new, anything unexpected? It mostly tells us things that were already known. The biography by Jeremy Triglown dug through publishers' archives and revealed quite how aggressive Dahl was over money and over his artistic control of his work. And, you know, there's extensive correspondence with his American publishers about the uh, their terrible failure to get him the right type of pencil with which to write his books and things like that. You know, he was clearly an absolute nightmare to work with as a publisher. And indeed, when he threatened to take his trade away from Knopf, Knopf wrote back and said, um, yes, please, uh, we'll rejoice. And apparently when that letter was sent to Roald Dahl, the, uh, the staff in the office all stood on their desks and cheered. So he was clearly an incredibly difficult person to, to deal with, but also complicated. I mean, as you say, he is absolutely the type of writer about whom one should have very mixed feelings. Like you, I read him when I was a kid and... I, for many years, only ate chocolate in extremely small nibbles because of the description of Charlie doing that and Charlie in the chocolate factory where you just grate off a little bit with your teeth and make it last for as long as you possibly can. And, you know, I, every time I open a chocolate bar still today, a Kit Kat, you know, I slice it open thinking, will there be a magic ticket in there? So there are there are great foundational imaginative acts in Dahl's children's fiction which just won't go away. There's also quite a lot of nastiness of a kind that I rather wish would go away. Not just giant insects in um, James and the Giant Peach, 
but also a sort of horrible snobbery directed against people with beards uh, in the twits, other kinds of horrible snobberies and antipathies towards different races and different classes. You know, it's it, it's all there. Jenny Deskey reviewed Jeremy Triglown's biography in the NRB in 1994, and in that she says that the last bit of Roald Dahl that she read was page 46 of George's Marvellous Medicine that she was reading it to her daughter, age seven. And just one of the descriptions of, of George's grandmother was just sort of so foul and misogynist. And she just thought, I don't know, you, you can read this to yourself now. I'm not reading this anymore. Yeah, it, it's a very fair response. And of course, reading to a daughter age seven, a story by Roald Dahl has a particular significance because his sister died when she was seven and his one of his daughters died when she was seven as well that is the sort of peak age that he was he was aiming at and there is just some horrible horrible stuff i mean the the witches got a great deal of stick when it appeared for its sort of caricature misogyny of witches as women who have to put on gloves and wigs in order to cover their scabby heads and their clawed fingers but again, it's more complicated than something that's straightforwardly horrible because the core of the witches really is not the description of the witches, but the relationship between the narrator and his grandmother, which is one of enormous affection, where the grandmother is feeding him with stories and encouraging him how to uh, win his battle against the witches who want to eat all the children in the world so you know he, he will always mix things up but there are always these moments where you just go oh yuck i've had enough of this that's part of the dull effect i think but you say in the piece that his key skill is his ability to repress nastiness while keeping it visible and that seems very true you took the words out of my mouth, yeah. Uh, <laughs> quite literally, off the page. I, anyway, out of I, yeah, I, I think that really is true. And uh, I mean, the larger question there really is about children's fiction and the nasty. And Dahl, in one of his irascible phases, would have said that it's only priggish librarians who are objecting to um, misogyny or cruelty or whatever, and that children love all that stuff would be his line. And... There's something there. I mean, a children's book that doesn't slightly frighten and appall is a, is one kind of children's book. And, and that containment of horror, I think, is a big part of the social and literary function of children's fiction. You know, where the wild things are is a kind of nightmare. And having a little bit of nightmare in a children's story is a very important part of what makes it have an impact on its audiences. I didn't really read Dahl to my children. They didn't particularly want to read him. And I think the particular kinds of nasty that he was repressing, pushing into the background, keeping visible, are quite unfashionable kinds of nastiness. And that is the problem with the nasty. I mean, it is dateable. And what is nasty but acceptable in one age is likely to become nasty but unacceptable in an age not much later than the age of production. So I think his ability to hold the nasty in check is a really important aspect of his afterlife. And the works where he doesn't hold it in check, I think, are 
just not going to last. I, I, I think the Twits is sort of straightforwardly horrible, and I think the Witches is straightforwardly horrible. But I think the BFG, the big friendly giant, really manages to combine nightmare and dream and fantasy in a way that will last. And the nastiness there is a horror or fear of of dying or being eaten by monsters, which is a sort of fear that children do feel and which they need to learn to manage. And I think the BFG, in a wonderful way, manages to control that nastiness. Some of the others, I think the nastiness gets out of control. And in the way, I mean, the, the BFG, sort of the story... I mean, it does that, and it also sort of describes it in quite a kind of literal, analogous way, if you can have a literal analogy, that at the end, the bad giants, the really big, unfriendly giants, are all put in a pit in London, in Hyde Park. This enormous pit is dug, and all the, the bone cruncher and the, the blood bottler and all the horrible giants are, are put into this pit where they're dropped in by helicopter. And so they're there, and they can be seen, but they're no longer a threat. So there's this kind of quite literal way in which the horror is is visible but but safe and in a way that's what he does in, and other children's writers do in sort of successful children's books they, they put the giants in a cage or in a pit i think that's right it, yeah i mean it's almost fiction as zoo isn't it where where you have the scary things and they're in cages and that's certainly true of the end of the bfg and it's sort of true of other kinds of nastiness elsewhere in dahl's fiction that he's 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 putting it in cages and trying to control it but he didn't set out wanting to write books for children did he i mean he tried to write grown-up stories as it were and he did write some but they weren't they weren't as successful as he'd like them to be the new yorker kept rejecting him and you begin your piece describing a short story from 1952 which i'm probably going to mispronounce <laughs> but and the great automatic grammatizator grammatic gr- grammatizator i don't grammatizator i think yeah probably but who knows yeah yeah and and that's one which is a sort of revenge fantasy on the world of literary journalism and and um upmarket publications like the new yorker because it's a fantasy in which a form of artificial intelligence is used to write the ultimate in fiction in whatever genre you care to write and it's driven as quite often Dahl's adult short stories are by grown-ups with a desire to get on in the world by means of shortcuts by cheating or stealing or getting one over somebody else and so they invent this grammatizator which can produce fiction of any type provided you control the buttons correctly and they go on to sort of harvest thousands of dollars and I think millions by the end by cornering the market in fiction and I think that is certainly what Dahl was wanting to do in the 1950s Um, he had a career during the war as a pilot which left him injured and also after he crashed and had a very bad accident he spent a period working in america and at that point in his career his main heroes in a literary sense were hemingway and c.s forrester and he wanted to write sort of hardcore successful masculine fictions Uh, and another of his heroes of course was ian fleming and i think that's 
as it were, what he wanted to be when he grew up, circa 1948. Uh, and it didn't really work out like that. And I think, again, it's partly because of the nasty. Um, I mean, the great automatic grammatizer is uh, a fantasy success story about stealing the market for short fiction um, and is relatively benign. But others of those early short stories are massively cruel and some of them are absolutely horrible. I mean, there's one slightly later story in which a woman is, as Dahl put it, inimitably fucked to death. And there are several others where particularly male-female relationships are nasty, violent and rather longer than any of the participants would have wanted them to be. So that current of nastiness, I think, did mean that mainstream journals were a bit reluctant to publish much of his stuff. But it wasn't only the nastiness, was it? Because there's also, I mean, are they, I mean, if you take the nastiness out, are they, are they any good? I mean, are they good enough? I mean, the New, I mean, the New Yorker was rejecting all sorts of things in the 1950s. Well, it's publishing some quite boring things as well, but it was, it was rejecting all sorts of terrible stuff in the 1950s. And in a sense, was it only the nastiness or, or was that a way that he could sort of explain it away when in fact they weren't good enough either? Probably, probably. Certainly he would have wanted to blame squeamishness in in his readers, that's true. Are they good enough? I think the defect of many of the short stories he wrote in the 1950s is that they are yarns, they're jokes, and they depend on the storyteller twisting things around in the end and entrapping the reader. And that does mean that they can seem mechanical. I mean, as mechanical as the productions of the great automatic grammatizer. I can't say it now. Grammatizer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you very much. Um, yeah, uh, and I'm sure that will have been part of it. I think. I think in some ways the um, actually the very early adult short fiction, the wartime stories, are some of his best things actually i mean some of them are sentimental and schoolboyish but there's one about a girl who is sort of adopted by pilots in greece who an orphan greek girl uh who's eventually killed which actually does convey something really powerful and awful about war uh and several of the ones from the 1940s when he was working more directly, I suppose, from his experience and not necessarily trying to please an audience uh, of smart New Yorkers. I think some of those stories really are very good. And it may be that actually his attempt to second guess what his readers wanted to read was the problem that he encountered in his short fiction in the 1950s. He also, of course, had a go at writing adult novels. And there's the first one I haven't actually read, which he um, more or less ignored, which was about a, a sort of post-apocalyptic world after a nuclear war. And that was not successful. It wasn't, wasn't well received and it, it wasn't reprinted during its lifetime, as it were. Uh, and he then tried to write another adult novel, which was a collection of yarns about... Um, yeah, very grown up, but not really very coherent. 
uh, piece of longer fiction which he never actually completed or never actually published. And so when he turned to children's fiction in the very early 60s, it was a sort of alternative career for him, really. And it's interesting that story about the girl, the orphan girl in Greece who's adopted by their pilots. That's almost a prefiguring of the BFG because that's a story. There's Sophie, she's an orphan girl who's accidentally adopted by the giant. And I mean, other ones, the nasty ones get recycled as well, don't they? I mean, in a sort of grammatizator way. In the piece you mentioned the story William and Mary, which is a very nasty story about a married couple hating each other. And there are lots of those. But in the twits, 25 years later, is quite like a a version of that story but for children yeah and the vengefulness between husband and wife certainly comes through loud and clear in the twits the most remarkable example in some ways is Danny the champion of the world which is based on a short story about a um a rural poacher who the narrator the sort of naive narrator goes out with and they try and drug pheasants by using sleeping pills stuffed inside raisins because apparently pheasants like raisins. I've never put that to the test myself, but um, maybe they do. That gets sort of sanitised and rewritten, what, 20 years later, maybe even more than that. And so he does have this sort of repertoire of yarns from his days as an adult story writer, which he is muting and mutating into cheery children's fiction because Danny the Champion of the World is actually in some ways one of his sunniest fictions because it's grounded in a straightforwardly adoring relationship between a son and his father and the father is a bit of a scamp and goes out poaching and all that but the uh, the son then has to sort of go and rescue him drive the car and all that um and it's it, it has a great charm to it which the early adult realist short story also had in its way but it was a charm that was tied up in rural poverty and an effort to get one over on the rich people who own the pheasants Although that happens in Danny as well, doesn't it? That they do it the night before the big shoot and Mr. whatever his name is, the yeah, yeah the Nouveau-Rouge guy in uh, the Rolls-Royce. Absolutely, in his Rolls-Royce. Yeah. So he's always pushing, pushing away or pulling up the adult fiction from below in the children's fiction. And that you could either see as a further sign of sort of imaginative desperation or you could see it as a kind of brilliance of, of just transforming something really socially and morally disturbing into something that looks sunny on the surface at least and I think there is a bit of desperation in Dahl's career and the recycling is partly the product of that he needed throughout his later life to make money or wanted to make a lot of money and he committed himself to four book deals and elaborate mechanisms for tax avoidance involving Swiss companies later on. And he was then forced, in effect, to produce children's novels at much too high a speed. And some of the ones he produced in that period, I think, are really not very good at all. I think George's Marvellous Medicine is a, is a, well... You know, it's a shockingly bad book, but... Uh... <laughs> that was, because there was that, that run at the end of the 
70s and the beginning of the 80s and the twits as well so the twits came out in 1980 george's marvelous medicine in 1981 bfg in 1982 and the witches in 1983 and they often read as if they were written very quickly and the way that he seems to be making it up as he goes along that there's a kind of (laughs) absolutely yeah I mean, there's a bit in the twits where he's described all the uh, Mr. and Mrs. Twit having a go at each other and obviously enjoyed that a great deal, having had himself a remarkably unhappy marriage. Uh, and then, then he says, oh, but this isn't really a story. What's going to happen? Let's bring in some monkeys and a, and a talking bird, you know, and, and get the twits glued to the ceiling or whatever it is so that they shrink to invisibility and, th- and there is that that you know oh god i've got an empty page i've got my sharpened pencils i'm going to keep writing until a story comes along and i think in that sequence of books that you just uh, listed i th- you know the amazing one is the bfg because it's surrounded by really pretty bad tired feeling books and yet it really does have a, a an energy and a fluidity to it that uh, I don't think the other ones really quite do. George's Marvellous Medicine is about, of course, a concoction. George throws everything he can into his pot. I'm going to forget all the crucial ingredients, but they include engine oil and flea powder and brown paint and everything else that he can find in the medicine cabinets that children should never be encouraged to look into. Um, And he throws them all into a pot, creates a marvellous potion, uh, and this originally in its original form, makes his grandmother, who is horrible, grow very, very large. Uh, And subsequently, they mix another, or they attempt to remake George's marvellous medicine, and they throw in a similar list of ingredients, missing some vital additional piece of muck. And the result is that he creates a potion that makes everybody very, very small. And... The story is itself really just a concoction where you're throwing in everything to a great big pot, trying to see if a story will result um, and crossing your fingers. And when a story doesn't result, you throw in slightly different ingredients and you get a slightly different outcome. So George's parents, who are farmers, want the potion in order to make their cows extra big so they can increase their profits uh, and are very disappointed when the second version of the potion doesn't actually do the job. And it is an attempt really just to create something out of nothing, to make flesh to make meat out of a concoction and that makes it really I think one of his weakest works and it was a work that was produced at a period when he was contractually obliged to write far too much in far too little time and it really does show I think. As you suggest in the piece that well and as other people did to him that the BFG like Danny's father and Willy Wonka is an idealized self-portrait and that he was very tall and the physical description of the BFG is like an exaggerated version of what Dahl himself looked like, although he'd always deny it when people said, are you the BFG? And he said, I don't know where you get that from. Even though that book ends with a, the last chapter is called The Author, and it says this book was written by the BFG, and yet he still <laughs> denies it's him. And I think the way that the BFG mixes dreams, that he can take a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and he has all his jars of dreams on the on the shelves, and he can take them up and he mixes them with his egg whisk, and then he can... There you go. This and this is a real, you know, fizz bang or whatever of a dream that they're going to give to the Queen, and that seems like a a metaphor, I guess, for the way Dahl writes his stories. He has all his jars of whatever on the shelves and mixes them up and 
out comes the next next bestseller that goes straight into the head of the the dreaming child yeah yeah he was he was a potion fashioner really it's there in charlie and the chocolate factory too because the tour of the factory is really an an opportunity to uh do one gag after another you know there there are the square sweets that look round well they're sweets that are square but they've got eyes so they look look around them so they're square sweets look around you and willy wonka who is making it up as he goes along is really the author too and i think in that respect Dahl um knew how he created i mean it comes through in the structure of those books and in the very self-conscious attempts to generate concoctions and that shows a great deal of self-knowledge but it also indicates why some of them just don't work some of them just feel like scissors and paste let's have another episode let's you know make him laugh this way and i think at his worst he's like the kind of family friend who I'm sure everybody will have experienced this at some point or another, the kind of family friend who visits. And you know that when you're a child, you know that they're convinced that they're great with children and they're really not. And they sort of suggest a whole load of things to you that you might want to do. And you go, no, actually, I just want to sit in the corner and read a book, you know, and I don't want to go out and watch jumbo jets taking off from Heathrow or whatever it might be. I don't like helicopters, but, uh, you know, the family friend insists, no, you're a child, you like helicopters. And I think, I think when Dahl misfires, it's because he believes too much in his ingredients and that all he's got to do is throw them into the pot and it'll work. And, writing isn't like that the lrb reviewed george's marvelous medicine did it i didn't read that i didn't but um michael Irwin, who and he suggested that for pre-pubertal westerners sweets fill the vacuum later to be occupied by sex and so he suggested i mean this is sort of seems very sort of early 80s serious in some ways that child in the chocolate factory is is a kind of pornography and not so far from the porny stories that he wrote for adults but with chocolate instead of sex it's certainly aimed at self-gratification in the in that porny way um yeah i think that's the night that was the 1980s talking partly wasn't it i mean i see it in, in from the, my perspective as somebody who's sort of mentally in the 1990s as much more charlie and the chocolate factory in particular as much more about the pleasures of consumerism and the little bit of me that is a historicist would say it grows from Dahl's experience going from a pretty austere English public school background through wartime austerity in Britain over to the United States in the late 40s and early 50s where, you know, you could you could sleep with film stars you could have as much chocolate as you like you could you could do so it is self-gratificatory and caught up in a mystique of of um mid-20th century american capitalism i'd say more than tied up with pornography but that's the 1990s speaking rather than the 1980s you know (laughs) yeah i mean it's one of those old things that it's sort of it's said to be how wonderful the chocolate factory is but then there are you know it's run on slave labor in a way that's sort of you know he tries to get round it but not really but but and those but one of the implications of that is that it used to be in the old days before all Willy Wonka's enemies stole his recipes because 
the local people who worked for him couldn't be trusted not to sell them. Everyone in the town worked in the factory and it's a prosperous town with this factory at the centre of it and then the factory closed up and everyone lost their jobs. And Charlie's family are you know, so poor and they only eat cabbage soup and occasionally have a potato every now and then. And it, Because the only money they have is from his father's job in the toothpaste factory on the other side of town, screwing the, <laughs> the lids on tubes of toothpaste. And, I mean, there's obviously a kind of, there's a joke there about toothpaste and sweets. But, I mean, how's, and that, I don't know, that difference between interwar England and America in the 50s is that I hesitate to suggest there's any kind of serious social or economic critique in, in the novel but it is it's quite easy to read it into it if you want to yeah yeah I agree and and the question is how far is he conscious of critiquing whatever it is he's critiquing the treatment of the Oompa Loompas is the rub, because uh, originally they're a sort of black pygmy race of slaves, and they're subsequently rewritten after people protested about the racism of that as uh, rose pink skinned with long blonde hair, I think. And the representation of them is something that would make, I'd have thought, any reader even in the early 1960s, feel a bit uncomfortable because every so often Willy Wonka, you know, overdoses one of them with some blueberry flavour and makes them turn blue or swell up and float through the ceiling and they just vanish. And they are the ultimate in uh, expendable labour. And, you know, Willy Wonka just doesn't want to see that or or will always tell someone to shut up and and stop talking about those problematic aspects of life in the chocolate factory but the fact that he that he dal represents those things and represents them as things that willy wonka doesn't want to see suggests that he dal does sort of know that this is a kind of ironical critique of of um, what goes on in these magical worlds of self-gratification. And he had experience in Hollywood and knew the dream factory from the inside and he knew its nastiness. Uh, he was married to a film star. So he was entirely aware, I think, of the things that people were willing to do in order to make money in America in the period between 1950 and 1960. So, yeah, there is a certainly an undertow of self-awareness in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. The question, I suppose, is whether that continues later on. And I think it probably doesn't in that by the time of, you know, George's Magic Medicine, the Twits and so on, Dahl is a Dahl factory and he is churning stuff out and wanting people to consume it. And he gets caught up entirely, I think, in his own mythology of being the great children's writer, Roald Dahl. And I think that's to his detriment. And so Charlie and the Chocolate Factory is, is quite an important phase in his career where the consciousness of what we called earlier on the nasty um, of slavery, um, consumerism, capitalism and its consequences is there. Um, but I think he just became more and more part of the sweet making factory, that industry himself, as his career went on. Because a lot of the criticism or the difficult questions in Child in the Chocolate Factory come from Mike TV, 
He's the little boy who's obsessed with TV and has cap guns and lots of Incarvo movies. And he's and he's one of the four horrible children who get their comeuppance. But it, it is quite interesting that as a sort of an avatar of Hollywood up to a point, he is the one who's yet yeah, is able to ask those difficult questions. That, and Willy Wonka says, oh, I can't hear what you're saying. Stop mumbling. When he's actually his question's been perfectly clear. And that, again, and sort of his hatred of TV and saying turn off the TV, there's a, the Umpalimpas sing a song about turn off the TV and read books instead, which seems to be the sort of moralising message that a writer of children's books might want to give. I've always assumed that that's sort of straightforwardly dull, doesn't like TV and that he likes books. But there is this fact that the kid who watches TV is actually has more insight than anyone else. Yeah, I think I think that's a really interesting thought. And Mike TV is um, well. He's he's not physically disgusting in the way in which the other children who get uh, their comeuppance are. And that kind of perceptiveness that Wonka doesn't want to hear is very much voiced through him. And that's curious. Certainly, the the hatred of television later on in Dahl's writing career, I think, becomes much flatter. And we haven't yet talked at all about Matilda, but Matilda's parents are a sort of snobbish representation of of a snob's eye view of a working class family who spend their entire time watching television and slobbing around. There, I think, the television watching public are seen straightforwardly as self-indulgent consumers. And again, you know, in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, there is something much more complicated that then gets flattened. So yes, I, th- I think Mike TV, Mike TV is a is a crucial figure in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I think we can agree. <laughs> Matilda, that her parents, that her father's a used car salesman, isn't yeah. he? That he, you know, and he's and he he's a crook, and he gets these useless old bangers, and he winds the mileometers back to make it look as if they've got a much smaller mileage than they actually have, and does all these tricks to dress up these kind of wrecked out old bangers as shiny new smart cars i mean you could say does dar realize that's what he's doing with his fiction at this point that by the you know, we're into the late 80s here he's retold these stories so many times that he's run out of road but he's still winding back the mileometer and <laughs> trying to flog another shiny car to the gullible public yeah i th- i i i like that i like that idea i th- i think um that the selling of something that's old as something new is a uh, is a big part really of what's going on in Matilda because Matilda's father is very much the kind of character who Dahl was trying to write about in his abandoned second novel for adults, which was to have been called 50,000 Frogskins, and Frogskins means greenbacks or, or dollars, and it's about desperate attempts to make money by whatever means and the central figure in that is a character called Claude who does all kinds of wheezes you know cheating on the greyhound races and robbing from farmers and that sort of stuff and Claude is being recycled really in Matilda's parents and in the first version of Matilda uh, before Dahl's publishers got to grips with it and suggested that he ought to change it the first version was about gambling really i mean miss honey as she becomes in the final version of matilda 
uh, is a compulsive gambler in the original version who's lost all her money. And the uh, the way of getting her money back in the original version was to fix a horse race. So uh, there is underlying Matilda a great sense of recycling an old banger, uh, putting a bit of sand in the gearbox and, and making it sound sweet and purring like a Rolls Royce, whereas in fact it is the old dull 1950s jalopy grinding off down the country road yet again. And does it matter? How much self-awareness is there in those books that he he wants to be the BFG? Ideally, sort of his best self is, as it were, the BFG or Danny's father, but how much does it matter in a sense that how self-aware he was? Yeah, it matters from a sort of the point of view of biographical judgment i suppose um more than it matters from a point of view of literary judgment i think if one looks at his life he was a very odd mixture of different qualities well you know everybody is but he perhaps more than most and he did suffer terrible crises in the 1960s his son when he was a baby was hit by a taxi in new york and suffered really terrible head injuries and dahl rushed around trying to fix him as it were and then uh i think in 1965 his wife the film star patricia neal had a had a brain hemorrhage which rendered her speechless and again Dahl rushed around trying to get her mended and and trying to get the best surgeons to look at her um, and help her back to health and that kind of slightly controlling high energy healing aspect of Dahl comes through very very strongly in those idealizing figures like Danny's father and um, and in the BFG the other side of Dahl was very much the philandering, devil-may-care father who I think said some terrible things to his surviving daughter after his first daughter, Olivia, died when she was seven. I mean, Tessa reports Dahl as having said that he just wished that Olivia was still alive and why aren't you Olivia? I mean, the kinds of things that would permanently hurt. So he probably was both the BFG and Matilda's dad. How much How much did he know that? I think he probably, as a person, thought of himself as being 98% BFG and 2% Matilda's dad. And I think in reality, the statistics were pretty much the other way around, actually. There's also the, the, um, his anti-Semitism that was you know, staggeringly repellent, really, the, some of the things that he said. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was, he was a raconteur and a wind-up artist. And that, I think, is part of his anti-Semitism uh, or uh, feeds into it. Um you know, it's as much a love of saying things that are shocking as a deep and settled racist opinion. But he did say, well, he he reviewed a book about Beirut in which he said some very hostile things about 
Israel and about Jews and then subsequently defended what he had said in print and he said that even a stinker like Hitler wouldn't have picked on them for no reason I, th I, I think was the phrase and you you know when when somebody says something like that you feel there is no hope for them um, he was I think stuck in an idiom of English public boarding school speak that was amplified by having spent time in RAF officers' messes. And he spoke in a kind of slang that was all, which was designed to occlude human realities. And so to describe Hitler as a stinker is just... You know, it's it's it, it, it it's beyond polite descriptors, really. Um, but the word stinker was a word that Dahl was very fond of using. He used it of his own stories when they weren't going well. Um, it it was actually for him a pretty strong term of opprobrium. But now it just sounds like profound moral insensitivity that someone should. Um, yeah. Well, and similarly, describing genocide as as picking on. Picking on people is well. Is, I mean, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it it it's just infantile, and and can't be excused. But it does come out of that self presentation as the um, the bluff truth speaker who um, can't stick um, prudish American librarians. You know, it's 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 part of that desire to wind up, and it is it is the voice of the mid-1940s coming out in what the mid-1980s I mean it's it's uh it ain't right mm. I wish I could find out who'd said this that someone once pointed out that one of Dahl's tricks is to an excessive use of superlatives that everything is the most marvelous <laughs> wonderful amazing great yeah. and it's not only these superlative adjectives but they're always the most of those things and somehow as a child you sort of you go along with that that when Danny says my father really was the most amazing father in the world and you think oh yes he was and in fact he's kind of he's a really terrible father but that <laughs> sort of sneaking off in the middle of the night and falling down holes and leaving his son alone in a caravan behind a filling station is like <laughs> sort of but then that's the sort of a grown-up you know that's the boring parents attitude which Dahl says that children must not grow up to have and here I am having grown up to to have these boring boring parent views but as a child you, you're sort of you're swept along by that um but then a point comes when you're sort of not willing to take his word for it anymore yeah I wonder if what is swept along by it um because I I'm not very impressed by superlatives and I was I was probably a pretty jaundiced youth as well and you know if something's said to be the most and the best you've got to make it the most and the best and I think Dahl often just didn't and as a result the hyperbole is of a piece with his neologisms the sort of goon swazzles and the swingles and the you know all those other words that sound a bit like words that exist but obviously also sound like Roldal in that they are a way of inflating a reality and it is interesting that you know he had a 
preoccupation with people being shrunk to the point of invisibility. And there is that sort of vector in his imagination which goes from the very, very large and hyperinflated to the um, the burst balloon sitting in the middle of the floor. You know, the twits end up as just a dress and a pair of trousers on the floor as they as they shrink as a result of having been turned upside down and the grandmother in George's Marvelous Medicine is shrunk away to nothing. So there is a sort of um, simultaneous desire to inflate and deflate. And that, I suppose, goes back to your vital question about how, how much he knew knew about what he was doing and that's not a question i can answer but but you know he is so keen on deflating and shrinking at the same time as maximizing and bestestizing and you know uh, amplifying beyond belief that it's hard to see that he wasn't conscious of himself as perhaps in the end a great windy inflator of some fairly tired old truths colin burrow thank you very much thank you you can read Colin Burrow's piece from the Christmas issue online now, along with Lali Khalili on McKinsey. And a reminder that until the end of December, you can still subscribe to one of our close reading series, which will be starting in January next year. There are three to choose from, one on 19th and 20th century long poems and short stories with Seamus Perry and Mark Ford, one on medieval literature with Irina Dimitrescu and Mary Wellesley, and one on ancient Greek and Roman poets and playwrights with me, Thomas Jones and Emily Wilson. If you sign up to the full programme, you'll receive 12 podcast episodes, one released each month, plus all the books accompanying the series, and access to online seminars with the hosts and special guests throughout the year. To find out more, and for details of audio-only options, go to lrb.me forward slash close readings, or click on the link below. The LRB podcast is produced by Anthony Wilkes and Zoe Kilbourne. The music is by Kieran Brunt.